please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We continue our look at this book. Again, we're looking at the idea of the people of God demanding a king. What does that mean for our own lives? Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. We thank you that it contains the timeless truths that govern our lives because you are our king and you are right to do so. You are right to require us to be and act as you see fit. And so we come to your word seeking wisdom and guidance. We come to your word seeking conviction for our sins, where we fall short. Guide us to the truth, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this, I was reminded of a conversation that I had with some students on the concept of what's what they called and what I think you've heard called before church face. Um, I have some very interesting conversations with students, by the way, about church. They just bring it to me and then we, we talk and it's fun. Um, they actually brought it up by saying that they were talking about going to church on Sunday or maybe it was even a Wednesday night, I don't remember. But they were saying that they were going to have to put their church face on. Now, that's, some, that's something I had heard before, but I asked them to clarify, and then they talked, and they just just kind of went on, and they said this. They said, you have to act nice, and you can't tell people what you're really thinking. And then they, another one said, well, everyone has to be nice. We all have to act a certain way, and you learn how to do that from your parents. One of them actually said that. It was a pretty fascinating conversation. I just kind of sat back and listened, mostly, because once they got going, they just continued to go. Um, it wasn't a shocking revelation to me. It probably isn't to you hearing it. Why? Because I think that we all do this and have this and have seen this to a certain extent. I think here in our own church, we have the luxury of a smaller congregation where we know each other well enough to know when things aren't as good as they should be, and we kind of get that from one another just because we don't see very many faces on Sunday morning, and I, that, I believe that to be a luxury because of that, but I think we've also been a part of larger groups, and where it's hard to expose how you really feel or say what you really think, because if you do that, you'll be kind of pushed to the edge. Why? Because we don't want people to know What's really going on in our hearts? Our hearts are always this mixture of things, right? We know what to say. We know what to do. We know what's right. But we're also thinking that weird thing. I mean, you all, you all understand. I know it's not just me, or at least I hope it's not. And we've all had those moments where our heart is exposed for a moment due to some sort of momentary letting down of the mask, right? We've all had those moments. Some of us more than others, definitely for me. And it scares us to think that other people might know now how we feel about them or about a situation or about anything that's going on, right? We have this church face that kind of protects that. And these students, these 14, 15-year-old kids, definitely understood that concept. So in our text today, the people of Israel 
are face to face with a particular situation, one that is difficult. Their leadership is kind of going south a little bit. And they expose their hearts before Samuel. They let Samuel know what they really feel. They let him know that it's time to have a king. That his leadership is fine, but what they really want is a king. They want to be like the other nations. They want a kingdom and everything that goes with it. Their current system isn't working for them, so that's what they want. They expose their hearts in the process. We see it, but not to God. Their hearts are always exposed to God. He always knows what's going on. He's never surprised by human sin. He knows full well what the human is capable of, even though we don't always know what we're capable of. He knows our hearts today just like he knew them back then. And so in this passage, we'll see that we're not at all unlike the Israelites. How we have a king today who reigns, but still at times we reject him. And so in this passage, we'll consider two main points. The king that we desire, and then the king that we reject. And so with that, let's stand together as we read God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting at verse 1 and reading it in its entirety. 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were sons in Beersheba, or they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up to, out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, 
you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that their king, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. So, to set up this text this morning, I think it's important for us to go back to um, Moses' writings to understand what the original thinking was on a king. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to read for you this portion of the law concerning the kings of Israel, even though there's not a king of Israel yet. But this is very telling to us, and I think it's important for us to hear in contrast to what we just read. It says this, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said, You shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest he lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This sounds like a good thing, right? Maybe if Israel had appointed a king and the king had followed this particular paradigm for being king, Israel would have done well. But it's fascinating to me that Israel wanted to do the opposite of almost everything that the Lord said. And the kings, we know, because we have the rest of the story here, definitely wanted to do the rest, the opposite of what the Lord, or most of the kings, wanted to do the opposite of what the Lord commanded. The idea of a king by itself isn't inherently bad. The Lord himself set up, these are parameters. If you choose to have a king, even if you choose to have a king because the nation's are doing it around you, then this is the parameters that you should do that in. It's a good thing, if done rightly. So what did Israel do wrong? What we read this morning from Psalm 118, and we saw there at the end, what 
did they put their trust in rather than a Lord? Man. They trusted in a king rather than the Lord. The king himself wasn't the problem. It was the trust in the king that's the problem. Remember chapter 4, when we started talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Was the Ark the problem? No. The Ark was part of the worship of the Lord. But was trusting in the Ark to save them, that was the problem. So the problem here, like chapter 4, is that Israel and, and we do not trust in the Lord. We don't trust in his plan. We desire another to rule over us, even if that's ourselves. We typically vote for ourselves to do that. And so first, I want to look at the king that we desire. And the first thing I want you to notice from 1 Samuel chapter 8 here is that Samuel is now old. He's old. We don't know how old he is. But his sons are both deadbeats. They, he's had two sons, Joel and Abijah. He set them up as judges, and his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside for gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Sound familiar? Sounds like Eli's sons to me. Well, we don't know why his children went wayward, but they did. Maybe he deserves some criticism for their upbringing. I don't know. We aren't given any of that info, so we're just going to leave it alone. We just know that it happened. What we do know is that we see the people in this situation. Samuel's getting old. They know that Samuel's getting old. He's been a good judge for the people. What have they had the entire time of his life? Peace. All of their enemies have been at bay. Remember we read that the hand of the Lord was against their enemies during Samuel's reign, and no one fought against them. And now they see that Samuel is dying, and they see that his heirs are both garbage. And so what do they want? Well, they're like, okay, this is coming to an end. We want for ourselves a king. And look at verse 5. This is where they say that. Appoint for us a king like all the other nations. And again, it might be easy for us to say that this is the problem. Remember in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord said they might want a king for that reason. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But as we continue on, we're going to see their real motives behind this. Remember as we were going through the book of John, what did we read over and over again when men would do things and decide things? It would say that Jesus knew the hearts of men and they were wicked. Well, we wouldn't expect it to be any different here in Samuel chapter 8 that he knows the hearts of men. And the Lord says to Samuel there in verse 7, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. They have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. What is their motive for wanting a king? They have rejected their true king, the Lord their God. Why do they want a king? They don't think the Lord's plan is right. They don't believe that he can do what he said that he will do. They see Samuel getting old. What are they starting to do? They're starting to be afraid. What does the Lord say about this pattern for the people? It's the same thing they've been doing since I brought them up out of Egypt. They've been turning to other gods. This is a constant refrain for the people of Israel. And so what does the Lord say to them? 
verse 9, Obey their voice, only solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Show them the king who will reign over them. And in a moment, I want to focus on those attributes of those kings. But note that after they hear them, there at the very end of the, there at 19, what happens? After they hear all the bad things that this king is going to do to them, they shout at Samuel, No, we want this king anyway. It's crazy. The Lord was insistent. Give them what they're asking for. And I think as an aside, this should scare us just a little bit. Because if we ever been insistent upon asking them for something that was bad for us, sure, you know our kids do that, right? They ask us for things that we know that if we gave them, it wouldn't be good for them. I know that there's been times in my life where my mom or my dad gave me things that they knew would be bad for me. Why did they do that? Why did they let me fail? Because it was good for me. It brought me back to the truth. It brought me back to an understanding that I needed them, that I needed what they had. Why would the Lord do that? Why would the Lord give the people of Israel what they wanted, even though what they wanted was not going to be good for them? So that they might learn to trust him. And it would seem from this story and other stories, the Lord does this sometimes. And so I think it should really give us pause when we pray. I think particularly since we struggle with idolatry anyway, that we need to be careful for what we ask for. So now let's look at what Samuel says that they're going to get. I'm just going to, to kind of uh, to give a basic overview of this. And I'm going to highlight the, uh, the the high points. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take. He will take. What is the king going to do? He's going to take everything you have. And he's going to use it for his own. That doesn't sound good at all, does it? Why would anyone want something that only takes, and once it's taken all of that, only ever asks for more and more and leaves you with pain and leaves you with sorrow? Why would, only, why would anyone want to follow something that only ever takes from you and never gives anything in return and leaves you, not, leaves you penniless, leaves you with nothing? I want you to consider this story. Some of you guys may know the story. I don't know. It's a kid that came to our high school few, uh, maybe last week or a couple weeks ago by the name of Zeke Pike, and he's the son of an NFL player of uh, the Buffalo Bills back in the 90s when they lost four Super Bowls, I remember. It's not fun. I was a Bills fan back then. <laughs> I'll stop that nonsense. Um, he, this man had a million-dollar DNA ticket, right? His dad was an NFL player. He was an, He was a high school player, but he was essentially an NFL player while he was in high school. He's one of the most highly recruited people out of high school. He was recruited by Auburn, perennial threat for the national championship, I think. I don't really know much about college football, but I think they're really good. All right, very good program, recruited out of high school, 
He lost his full ride before practice even starts because he couldn't shake drugs and alcohol. He liked those things better than he liked his million-dollar ticket. Well, a while later, later that summer, he was given another chance by Louisville. Louisville picked him up, and he lost that scholarship because of drugs and alcohol. A few years later, Murray State called him, our own Murray State, and he lost that scholarship because of drugs and alcohol. Even as recent as nine months ago, he was arrested for drugs and alcohol here in Cowley County. How did it start? To hear him tell the story, he needed help fitting in among his friends back in high school, back when he was 17. He needed help because he was so concerned about what they thought about him. So he turned to drugs and alcohol to help him. And they took things from him. And they kept taking things from him. And they kept taking away from him. And they left him with nothing. And now he travels around to high schools, looking back at the last nine months of his lives, probably because of a plea deal or something, telling people his story. Hopefully he's getting better. I hope the best for him. Drugs and alcohol, I think, are real easy for us. These are the obvious culprits in the category false gods that take things because it's real easy for us to see how they make people just waste away to nothing. Uh, Division I NFL, future NFL athlete gets wasted away to absolutely nothing. Now he's walking around talking to high schools. But what are those are the that's the obvious culprit, right? What are some others that maybe are less obvious or more obvious, depending on who's talking? Anger is one of them. You know, the Proverbs, if you read through the Proverbs, what do they constantly tell us? They remind us that the angry person is to be avoided at all costs, that he's only headed for trouble. Even but yet People continue to think that anger is a great way to control a situation. And so then what does anger do? It takes and it takes and it takes. It'll take your family. It'll take your job. It'll take your well-being. It'll take your life. What about the pursuit of wealth? Nothing wrong with having money, obviously. But in our pursuits of it, don't we feel the pull don't we feel that we'll never have enough? There's never enough? When it is king, what does it tell us? More, more, more. What does it take to get more? More, more, more. What does it take away from us? Well, it can take, and I've, we've all seen this. Watch the news. It takes our integrity. It takes our reputation. It takes our conscience away. It takes, and it takes, and it takes. What about anxiety and worry? What did Jesus say? Which of you can add a day to his life by worrying? Yet, we still think we can. Does it add anything? It takes our well-being. takes our peace of mind. takes our sanity, even. It takes and it takes and it takes. Fill in the blank. I think you get it. When we don't desire Jesus, when we desire some other king and trust in some other king, it only takes. It only ever takes from us. And just a quick word about this like the other nations thing. I think there can definitely be improper motives 
tied in with that idea as well. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, you can read this if you want to. Deuteronomy 4, 32 through 40. I'm not going to go there. But the Lord goes to the nation of Israel and he reminds them that there is not another nation on earth like them. Israel was a nation that was different from any other nation. Why? Because the Lord chose them. The Lord spoke to them. The Lord was with them in all that they did. Which part of that did they deserve? None of it. They were unlike any other nation. And they were supposed to remain unlike any other nation. Their laws were fashioned as such. The way that they worshipped their God was fashioned as such. They were supposed to remain different from all the other nations. And so we want to be different from all other nations is wrong in this sense because there is no way that Israel could ever be like any other nation because of who God is. Israel's standard was different. And their God is the God of the universe as opposed to some poser. For us, consider our own. We are the church. We are his chosen people, made sons and daughters because of the only Israelite that ever obeyed the terms of the covenant, Jesus Christ. We are in the family because of what he did for us. So, we are different, right? We are the ones that God chose out of the earth to serve him, to love him, to spread the hope of the gospel. So what does be like the other nations look like for the church? I don't think we have to go very far in this. I think we're all of us are of a like mind on this concept. I'm not going to talk about the ways that the church tries hard to be like the world. We all see it. It's, it's plain. And so for this, what I want to do is I think it should encourage us to continue to do the plain things that we do. Preaching the gospel every week. Working the way through the scriptures. Teaching our children the truth of scripture. Loving one another. Ministering to our neighbors. Sharing our faith with the world. These are the plain things. These are the things that we are instructed to do. We are different. We are to be set apart, just as God is set apart. Leviticus 19.2, familiar verse. The Lord says, You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. How do we understand the word holy? What do we understand it to mean? Different. We are different. So as, a, as people who are different, what are we going to continue to do even though, that, even though the world says this is not good. We're going to continue to see that life is precious and shouldn't be wasted or destroyed. We're going to continue to be faithful in our marriages. We're going to continue to teach our kids the doctrines of the faith. We're going to continue to desire worship over entertainment. The whole counsel of the Word of God, rather than using the Bible as a collection of inspirational quotes, we're going to continue to do the plain things that scripture teaches us to do. And so let me let that be an encouragement to you as a church. We're just going to continue to do the right things. And so, secondly, this text tells us of the king that we reject. 
It says that we reject the Lord himself. Well, there in your bulletin is the larger catechism's version of how Jesus executes the office of king. I'm going to use the shorter catechism version of that as a talking point, but you have that larger catechism in front of you, and so look upon that as well. The shorter catechism says that Jesus executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Pretty plain. This is what he has done since the very first man and the first woman that walked the earth. Subdues us to himself, rules and defends us, restrains and conquers all of our enemies. So what do we get after he brings us to himself? We get him ruling and defending us. And how do we understand this idea of subduing us to himself? He's bringing us from death to life, from darkness to light, pulling us up from the miry clay and placing us upon the rock. Afterwards, he rules us with life-giving words to guide and direct us. He defends us first and foremost. Who does he defend us from? The Father that would exact justice on us because of our sin, but instead Jesus took upon himself that justice and that so that we could be innocent. He justifies us before the Father, and he continues to defend us. Who else from? Well, ourselves, because we desire to be free of his arms of love and wander back into darkness and decay. He defends us from that. He defeats our enemies, who were our main enemies, sin and death, by nailing our sins to the cross, by himself raising to the dead and promising that we too will follow in that resurrection. He points at death even in mockery and says, where death is your sting? Where is your victory? He continues to restrain sin as he's making us more and more like himself. And finally, what does he do for us? He takes us home. He tells us that he's preparing a place for us even now where we will be there feasting upon his goodness and his mercy for all eternity. He gives and he gives and he gives. And what do we do? Give us another king. We reject him. For us, the church, I think it's important to understand this. Do not lose heart. This isn't a sermon to make you feel bad in that sense that, oh no, we're all horrible people. Yes, that's the truth. However, this is the sin problem, right? This is what we carry with us, right? Until he brings us home. That's important because he's still planning to do that. What does he give us? Forgiveness. Mercy. He chastises his people, doesn't he? Spelled out there in the larger catechism, that he corrects us of our sin. Hebrews 12 even says, what kind of children are not disciplined by their father? I think we all get that. That's a part of our growth as well. But our rejection of him, thankfully, doesn't cause him to reject us. And so that is where we rest this morning. Don't leave here feeling bad 
about the time that you've rejected him, which is any time that you sin, because we are, we are his because he remains faithful to us even when we are without faith. Even though he knows our hearts, they're never closed to him. Even when we wear our church faces, he can see right through them. Even while we were yet sinners, he died for his people. And he is faithful to forgive every single time that we ask. And so for the unbeliever this morning, call out to the Lord. Hear about his goodness and his mercy. Call upon the Lord Jesus and be saved. Even in your idolatry, what will he do? He will save you. Unlike all of those things that you trust in now, he will continue to give you all that you could ever imagine. And it's good. So for the believer, what do we need to do this morning? Don't lose heart. Again, don't leave sorrowful. But we still need to cast down our idols. Our hopes and false kings. Toss them on the ground. He knows our hearts. He sees our desires. And so let us then turn our hearts and our hopes to him. Jesus Christ is our king, brothers and sisters. So let us bow before him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we regularly reject you for someone else, usually ourselves. And so we pray for, for your forgiveness. And not simply, Lord, forgiving us, but turn us away, or turn us away from our idols and turn us to you. Help us, Lord. We need help to repent. Guide us to repentance so that we might walk even more strongly with you. Lord, give us reminders every day of the hope of the gospel, of what you have done for us, the fact that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. We thank you for that. Guide us, continue to convict us of our sin. Show us your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.